Hello and welcome to The Fellowship Phase, an Adventures in Middle-Earth podcast. I'm Josh and that's Callum. We're going to give you inside information on how to find your own path through Tolkien's world. At the foot of the lonely mountain lies Dale, the great city of men in the north. Ever the close allies of the dwarves of Erebor, Dale was a place of peace and trade known far and wide. That was until the coming of Smaug and the desolation wrought. Now, with the dragon dead in the lake, Dale is rebuilding, and many labor with hands, hearts, and minds in this endeavor. Hello, Callum, and for this evening, hello, James. Hello, James. Hello, me. How are you both doing? Good. Are you looking forward to a deep dive into your character, James? I, ha- what we're I here am. For. I have been looking forward to this um, since you first uh, proposed the podcast that you two would be hosting it, and a fine job of you. You have both been doing so far. Thank you. If I may say. Thank you. And and suggested you might be having some guests on. So yes, been very much looking forward to it. Good, good. And Callum, the narrative segment leads us in nicely. What will we be talking about besides well, simply James's character? Well, we'll be introducing James's character, and I'll leave that to James to do. And as part of that, the introduction was about Dale because James's character is drum roll. <laughs> a barding or a uh, man of dale as they're called uh, indeed my character um who been playing now for over two years i think that's right uh, no definitely right i know that's right over two years that's wild yes uh my character is uh towards son of farald honorary member of the royal guard of dale hero of the woodman elf friend uh, Hornbreaker and known as Lightfoot among the dwarves for reasons we will get into later. <laughs> I love, I absolutely love how many titles he has and I, that you can remember them. I can't remember them. I was looking at them on a piece of paper. No, I wasn't. That's a lie. It was a Word document. I just wanted to make it sound more like old worldy. <laughs> it worked. For people listening, recently we, the party, visited Rivendell and were being introduced to Elrond. At this point, had been playing for two years, and between us had accumulated a lot of titles. The party had a title, and uh, Callum, as the lawmaster, said in character, when you're introduced to Lord Elrond, tell me what your titles are so I can introduce you properly. And I think all of us immediately forgot all of the cool titles that we'd accumulated. And I was like, Halmir? <laughs> Shrug my shoulders, I don't know. I'm glad that you've remembered because we've got some cool titles we can come on to. Well, I mean, Torwald and audiences is a thing that's actually gone back to relatively early in the game yes. uh, with the early encounters with Bayorn, where I think we did play a bit with Torwald coming from this slightly like, well, you know, Bayorn's like a, a lord and he should be treated appropriately while Bayorn views things differently. Um, and I think that was one of the early uh, interesting culture clashes that we not dramatic, not not a source of actual conflict, but that I thought added some nice texture 
to the world and obviously interacted with those audience uh, rules that you were talking about on whichever episode it was and the hidden from us players uh, yeah. expectations and the motivations of the patrons who you might meet and such powerful folk as that so yeah Tolo's been with us right from the beginning he was one of our starter characters am i right in thinking he was your first ever roleplay character that you made not exactly oh. almost 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 he's the first one i've played i'm gonna say successfully <laughs> what does oh. that mean <laughs> so i'm gonna say it must have been like 20 years ago i was on holiday in the states visiting my cousin and he my brother and i or, or my cousin suggested let's let's play D and my brother mm-hmm. and i were like sure we're nerds let's do that and <laughs> he roped in his friends to DM. And funnily enough, uh, my first character was a half-elf druid. I, I think everyone goes through a half-elf druid phase, to be honest. Yep, I think so. And we got five minutes into the game, uh, and Richard, my brother, said something that annoyed Jared and basically led to us instantaneously being all killed by lightning. And that was the <laughs> like, It was the most classic... Rocks, short rocks of actual rocks falling, everyone dying. Most classic <laughs> uh, DM, DM is annoyed, gonna kill you all. And that was the end of any of my forays into tabletop role playing games for 20 years, essentially. Well, uh, after 20 year gap, created yes. Torvald. And yes. uh, so far, we've not annoyed the lore master enough for rocks fall, or at least. Any of the things that could be considered to be rocks fall, kill the party, we've said. I'm slightly suspicious of the number of five-foot gaps he's put in, <laughs> personally. Could we talk about then, uh, and I really enjoyed talking with Stuart about the process of creating Runin, his dwarf character. Could we talk about the kind of mechanical process that you went through to create Torvald? So, like, what was your starting point for him as a character? Where did you start with as an idea? I think I started with what would be an interesting character for me to explore this world with. Okay, yeah. And obviously I'm a big Tolkien fan, quite a lot of familiarity. I like the idea of playing a character who shares that in some way. And I mean, there is that old line that your first real D&D character or first real character is sort of just a version of yourself. After that, you branch out a bit more, but it is often the case that one gravitates to a uh, similar type, uh, an archetype that matches. So saw so scholar and was like, yeah, that seems right. I have a PhD in real life. That's sure. Let's play. Let's play a scholar. <laughs> that was it does a fit very neatly. That was a factor, uh, if I'm honest. And. But I did. I wanted it. I didn't want it to be like he's someone who. So this is one of the early choices I made. Is settled on scholar first. I think. Where should he be from? Where does it make sense for a scholar to be from? Especially since we were knew we were starting in the mysterious town of Lake Town, the origins <laughs> whose name is lost. We'll never in the know. mists of time. We'll never know. Knew we were starting at Lake Town. And my, my initial instinct was Minas Tirith is where the scholars probably are. 
in Middle Earth. But having a character from Minas Tirith at the start of the game, and obviously your second character, Josh, is not from Minas Tirith, but it's from Gondor. Yeah. I think introducing that later worked, but I think having a character from Gondor at level one I know exactly what you mean. Just feels or felt not that it couldn't work, but it was it wasn't the vibe I was aiming for. It it, it being so far from home in yes. such a different setting implies that there had been adventure already for them to have got there. The idea of starting out in your adventuring life hundreds of miles from home in a completely foreign land seems unlikely. I know exactly what you mean. Precisely. So then I thought it's probably Lake Town or Dale then. I mean, I could have gone with a Dwarven scholar, could have gone with a, a scholar of of Mirkwood, which, which I did draft out what that would look like as one of my dozens of backup characters that I tend to, <laughs> uh, that tend to be my stress release valve when things are <laughs> looking dire for the party. But I think I wanted to stick with that ordinariness. And the other, and so the thought occurred to me, if you grew up in a lake town, and this is obviously, as is well established, AIM tends to begin five years after yeah. Smaug uh, destroys old lake town. So I was thinking, okay, this is someone who's grown up in old Lake Town, whether they're a barding or, or a man of Lake Town, and grown up with stories of Dale. And maybe on a clear day, you could see across the long lake and see just at the edge of sight, the ruins of the old city. And that image is the core of the character for me, the idea of looking north and of course looking north does have some significance in Tolkien and I think that will come will come into more discussion of that uh, later but looking looking north and uh, seeing the faded glories of the past I love it that sounds like a journey event it does a little bit doesn't it <laughs> now yeah. you say that it's so, it fits so well the game I, I don't think I, you've ever said that to me before that's really interesting Scholar was a natural fit then for you. It made sense. Did you, was it a natural fit after you'd read the whole class? Like, were you aware of the features and stuff? Or was it just, you saw Scholar, the ideas there, you'll take the mechanics as they come? The latter. And That's I really think that to some extent is because it's very important for this conversation to establish that I had no idea what I was doing when I made Torvalds. <laughs> yes, as you've, you've mentioned to me numerous times since, which is, which is funny because I feel like I'm, it's not a, an offence to say, and it's just true, but James is, is probably of our group, the person who now puts the most time and thought into making characters that, that, are, that will work well, what you may call metagamer. Is that the right word? Power gamer? I'm not sure how you would describe it. I would say more of a power gamer than a power meta gamer. Game. I'm not saying I yeah. don't occasionally slip into <laughs> meta game. Meta gaming either. But I think what you're describing there is more yes. power gaming. Not because I want to be better than anyone else, but just because I like to create uh, characters who are good at doing things. Yeah. That is. I, I get it. And I, I'm the same, I think. We're, you know, maybe not to the same extent. I tend to go for like a really same. silly. Same. 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 <laughs> I go for a really <laughs> silly idea and then just try and make it as, as ridiculous as possible. I still want to get that halfling mounted on a, a dog or something, a character out the cavalier thing. It's like a puzzle, isn't it? When you've got an RPG and you're building a character and how do you make the mechanics work 
in a, in a strange way or, or a powerful way. That's, that's a, a puzzle, but obviously we, you know, as you said, you didn't have any experience. So we'll maybe come on to that later on and ask you what you might have done differently, which is probably quite, the best place to talk about that. Quite yes. a few things. Um, and <laughs> there was an and I didn't know where I was going. <laughs> I was trying to end the sentence. The, the, the five foot gap conversations. <laughs> Watching you audibly approach the five foot gap. <laughs> unsure if you'll make it to the other side I, to, we can say that the five foot gap thing is specifically because Tord has a strength of eight <laughs> which means he has minus two to strength which means that I believe according to the established D&D rules of how far you can jump <laughs> without having to roll a strength check which again he's bad at is something like half your overall strength score. So he can only jump four yeah. foot gaps. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's been yeah. quite a few times where it's been like epic rogue challenge and adventure conquering this tower and there's a small gap, we're fucked. Right, and, and because on any battle map, if there's like a square or a tile, it's just like, there's a gap, there's just one tile. But that, that means it's five feet. It's always five feet. It's going to be five feet. Yeah, it's strange. It's only one foot longer than he can jump comfortably. I don't know if we got that calculation correct. Again, we didn't really know what we were doing when we started doing this. So maybe we should revisit and make sure we have that rule down correct. It's, it's one of those rules, and there's a lot of rules like this. We were talking about this last night when we were playing uh, Crest of Strad, which Josh is running for us, which is excellent. And what we were, talk- we were talking about all the different detect good and evil and yes. finally, all these spells which are kind of similar. And Josh was saying that he needed to, to, to understand and memorize them. And I was like, nope, just, just ask, just read it every time. Because I think there's some rules in D&D which it's worth committing to memory and an aim. And there's some things it's worth just saying, we're going to look it up every time. And just memorize the jumping rules. Yeah. Yeah, where, yeah, where are you going to find it? Have you got a DM screen or, you know, have, and that's, again, that's a bit of a lore master thing for this is that I know where all the rules are, but I don't know what they all are. And I have got like little lists of things that come up quite commonly that I refer to a lot. So anyway, that's a sidebar. Shoot. We know that Torvald's not good at jumping across gaps, but he is good at lots of things. What what are his looking back at the beginning, what were his kind of starting core abilities? And now having played for quite a long time, what are the ones that he regularly does? What's his kind of role in the party? Is most consistent role in the party has been lookout, which is obviously a specific function within the journey rules. He is almost always the lookout because he has high perception as well as high intelligence. Because again, to reiterate, I did not know what I was doing. <laughs> so he has always been the lookout. And he's always tended to be the one who's both focused and able to figure out what is going on. I see that as his function within the party. He's the one who investigates. He's the investigator. He is the brains of the operation. He is, to some extent, the brains of the operation, not in the sense of being the mastermind, but in the sense of being the one who provides context. What are we doing? Why are we doing it? What will it accomplish in the, in the big picture? I think is something he thinks a lot about. Uh, one title he would like to add to his list of titles is 
co-founder of NORTO, the North Vivanian Treaty Organization. <laughs> I forgot, I forgot about that. <laughs> I am never going to forget about it. It's going to keep gonna happen. It's going to happen. Going to keep day. coming back. Going to make it. I'm going to make it happen. A big part of scholar as a class, and I say this as someone who was a scholar to begin with, and we had a lot of overlap with our class, is that's where the healing mechanic in the game is, which is smaller than it is in a lot of role-playing games. There's no magical healing as such, but the scholar has healing abilities. Now, Phaedric was with the party in our early journeys, and he was much more focused on being a healer, so he kind of fulfilled the healer role, but he retired. And then that burden kind of fell to Torvald. How do you feel about that? That sounds like that's very, that was a very journalist. How do you feel about that, Josh? Is what that sounds like. I don't know why I sound like that. I don't know what possibly has given the impression that that's how I would ask a question. It is interesting. It's absolutely interesting um, to me that to some extent, because we had weirdly two scholars to start with, Thudrick was able to be the healer in a very specific way. Whereas I think if Thudrick hadn't been around, Torwald might have been pushed into that role earlier and that might have defined him earlier on. And I think it's more interesting that he didn't actually have to be the healer. He certainly wasn't the combat healer at the in the early stages of the game. And I also think that contrast was helpful early on for defining who Torwald was because of course as you talked about Thudric is this worldly man in the sense of having experienced much of the world I really wanted to talk to you about this because I certainly felt from playing Thudric that I we didn't know what we were doing I suppose and we didn't really coordinate our party so and I know some some players like to do that and they plan out who's going to fulfill which role we didn't and because of that, we did end up with, in our case, two scholars. Also, we ended up with two Bjornings, me and um, and Scott, who plays plays Carhu. So there's a lot of overlap. I think naturally our two characters were quite different in how we envisaged them. But I certainly felt role-playing Theodric, having another scholar who had an identity helped me define who Theodric was. Because I was like, well, Torvald is young and Theodric's older. How would he approach things? And I, I liked that our characters kind of bounced off each other and help define each other did, is that did you have the same experience exactly exactly the same i'm remembering i don't know if i would call this uh one of my favorite toward moments exactly <laughs> but with the uh, uh the city of the ear fed <laughs> when we essentially had completed what we were there to do but we found a cave that definitely had a troll in it and yes, yes. and Thudric's response was, "There's a troll. Let's leave." Whereas Tor's response was, "It was sorry. It wasn't a cave. It was the entranceway to a uh, tomb, yeah, which was must have been full of wonders of the people of the earth. Ed, and there was there was knowledge to be uncovered there, <laughs> and we we." might find out more of the world if we just take a look and also fight a troll when Runa nearly died. But <laughs> I mentioned yeah, it just have... because it, it was, I think, a good illustration of here are two characters who are both of the same class, who are both among the party, among the more cerebral. Yeah. 
but nevertheless are coming from different, very different places. Imagine how different the campaign, if, if Renan had died there, imagine how different the campaign had been because he did come pretty close. I think he got knocked out. In like very close. One hit or something. It was... It was death saving throws for Runin, and yeah. it was early on. And we did have both of us as scholars, so we had healing um, abilities. But because we were scholars, we didn't really have much combat ability. Our party was quite light on combat ability, and facing the troll was pretty tough at that time. And I think as we've established, Runin's a bit of a superhero. Without him, I don't know if we would have made our way through the wilds as much as we have. Um, maybe I can ask a bit more about. Um the barding like going through when you're creating the character so we've touched on maybe we will come to the ability score spread because i think that's one of the interesting uh, parts of torvald which defines him in a way and i i know that you know it makes some parts of the game like combat very difficult but one of my favorite moments is a combat moment though we'll get we'll get to it oh oh exciting so bardings what do what do bardings get bardings i have the book in front of me i have the uh, Adventures of Middle Earth Player's Guide. One of the the few people with the... the... I've probably got one of the last copies. <laughs> I don't look after it. These things are going to be... Uh... Well, they are worth a They're, lot of money. <laughs> it's worth a lot of money. They are. So, Bardings. Uh, bardings get, in terms of mechanics, uh, an extra constitution and two additional ability score points. Uh, which is fairly typical, I think, for humans in this game. Yeah. The, really, the most notable thing is, apart from the standard cultural virtue, is a proficiency in the insight skill. So with a high wisdom, that also means that Dord is pretty good at some aspects of social encounters as well. Has at least a couple of useful things he can put. He's also good at traditions. So although that was something we changed, uh, we, did, we, did, we did go back and kind of change a couple of things. I don't know uh, if I knew about that. So one of the things I initially, he was initially proficient in history. And what we decided was it made more sense if he was proficient in traditions, because that meant he, he would be knowledgeable about things happened in more recent history and contemporary customs. And then what I liked the idea of as, as I played it a bit more was it doesn't really make sense for him to like know the legends of the second or first age yet. He's just starting out. So what I like the idea of is uh, sw swapping out history for traditions, and then there is a scholar class feature. Well, later on, you can pick up a proficiency, um, and we thought thematically that would be better. And I think this is a good example of when, when people are starting out, particularly if you've not done name before, like, you know, it's, you've written it down, but it's not set in stone. So if you find that the character develops and the rules don't fit the character and then change, change the, like change what the pick was, the rules, like I have no issue with that at all. Yeah. You know, I guess if it's like someone trying to just directly get more powerful, but I, I can't imagine anybody would want to do that. I mean, I did want more proficiencies, Callum. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but when it's a genuine mistake, like, oh, I didn't realize that if I got level up, yes, then if I would I... Get history had understood better uh, these things but it does betray my slight tendencies towards that was a word i, I want to use that sounds best makes it sound better than it is never mind it will occur to me but later, people I'm being sure. quite down on this as a sort of player style and i think that's unreasonable people enjoy the game in different ways yeah i think enjoying the game because you have a character who's good at things and then you do the things that you're good at it's not a bad thing 
I just I just want to collect I just want to as told I want to collect proficiencies like Pokemon. Anyway, <laughs> would you say you Tor would like to be the very best? Yes, yes, the best there ever was. <laughs> okay. The other thing we swapped around was distinctive quality, but we can come back onto that later. I feel we need to talk about it now. Well, we could talk you, about it now. You've piqued my interest now. What, what was the distinctive so quality? Why rolled, did it change? I, I rolled for, the, for it ah, okay. initially because I couldn't decide, so I just rolled for it. It's like a D6. And I got determined. And then over time, what I found is that it made it harder <laughs> to, to drop things. <laughs> So I swapped it for Curious, which felt like actually a more characterful yeah. aspect. Like it seemed more specific to Torvald that he was curious. I really like that. So we're doing this in a funny order. We're doing this. For, I've ruined everything. No, no, no it's fine. So we did the class. <laughs> you said that you chose the class first. So we're going to the class last. So we've done the culture, which was part of it. <laughs> and now we're moving to the background. So, Seeker of the Lost is the... Okay, we can do that now. We'll, we can come back to Virtues later, I suppose. Because so, distinctive quality, just for people that weren't sure what that is. So, when you choose a background, you get three things. You get... That's not right. You get four, four things. things. You get a distinctive quality, a speciality, a hope, and a despair. Yes. Yes. And I don't think I rolled for all of them. I think I just rolled for the first one, which is a D8, and two... Again, to try and get more definition to the character, because I wasn't sure what direction I wanted to take the character in. But then once I was more sure, then I was like, actually, let's edit this, <laughs> I suppose. There's a thing, like, it says on the page that you're one thing and you role play it a different way. And so does it really matter what's on the page? But it, it, can, it can be helpful if you're unsure in a situation, like how you would react to come back to these suggested yeah. characteristics. And I think that they do a do good job in the background of, of giving you something to, to base it on. To be honest, I'm not, I don't, when I'm making a character really ever, I don't really ever roll on tables. I, you know, in D and D for, for example, if there's a background feature, I just choose. I don't roll. I usually do too. Again, I think it was because this was my first real character in 20 years or ever, arguably. So, so I rolled, I don't know if I rolled for each of them, I can't remember that. I definitely rolled for distinctive quality, I think. And then I think I also rolled for specialty because that's what gave me my dark secrets specialty, which oh, is, is that where it came from, which I think is oh, where wow. that came from. Oh, I did not realize that. That's a big part of your character now. Which is a big part of what's shaped toward and his focus. Which is? Shadow Law. Shadow Law, which is going to be the next episode. Which is going to be the next episode. Did you just do an advert for our own <laughs> podcast in the middle of our own podcast live? Do you like Adventures in Middle Earth? <laughs> Have you listened to the Fellowship podcast? It's the new podcast everyone's talking about on. Round of Water Cooler. Are we recording? We're recording a, a glut of episodes in advance of going live and. James was part of our special preview audience, which was the people who play the game. And so 
<laughs> the captive audience it. that we have. So yes, maybe there's maybe there's been feedback so far, which has been like. Talk a bit about dark secrets then. What does that mean mechanically? What was the starting point with that mechanically? And then maybe we could talk a bit about how that's grown for Tor. Well, I don't think the special, because the dark secrets is just the specialty, which I don't think has a mechanical effect, strictly speaking. It's thematic choice, I believe, with any of the specialties, right, Cam? And, and if you decide as lawmaster that maybe on occasion it might provide some additional benefits, then I think the lawmaster is entitled to do whatever <laughs> he or she wants to whatever do. Whatever they want. Can't launch. Uh, whatever they want to do. But I don't think it has mechanical benefit. But scholar class has two specialties, which are subclasses. So master healer is what Thudric was. Indeed. While Torwald was a master scholar. And as a master scholar, you get so-called secret laws. And the first of the secret laws that I took as Torwald was dark knowledge, which does have a specific mechanical effect. For one thing, you learn the black speech of Mordor. It's quite intense for level one. Uh, well, it's not level, level one. Level three? It's, so it's level three. Yeah. Oh, well, then fine, you've been on yeah. the road a few months, fine. Well, it was specifically after we went to scout the Drummerhorn. It was. Yeah, we'd had so a real actually it kind dark of encounter. Yeah, we managed well. to work in a narrative um, a segment that we'd link to. Sort it's of? a bit of a stretch. It was a bit of a stretch, but it sort of made sense. Yeah. It made sense as much as visions in Tolkien sometimes can come at a significant moment. It made more sense than if you had gone to sleep one day and then woke up and were like, I can now speak the black speech of Mordor, which some level-ups can feel a little like that. Yes, the fact that, again, the fellowship phase, hey, that's the yeah. name of the show, uh, mechanic. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm always there for an Arrested Development reference. Thank you. Because of the fellowship phase mechanic, usually you're leveling up with a fe- or after fellowship phase, so it does feel like there was... Usually there's been time for things to happen, which is a thing that I like about this game in particular. But Dark Knowledge gives you Black Speech and Mortar. Mort- <laughs> there are still words in there. There are words in there. It gives you the Black Speech of... Where's that now? Lake Mortar. Mortar. And you can make ability checks about information regarding the Shadow and its followers without penalty. Additionally, if you don't already possess it, Gain proficiency with shadow law. There we go. Okay. And you also got skill proficiencies in lore and investigation from Seeker of the Lost. So we're really ticking off the proficiencies here. Yes. And then when you, interestingly, when you learn the secret, you gain four shadow points. Do you actually? Yes. Which is a lot. Which is I a did lot. not know this had happened. That's because that fellowship phase, I took the option to remove shadow points and immediately... Balance it out. Balanced it out. I didn't even know it was on the table. I didn't know that, you know, internally Toro was struggling with this darkness as he was developing. That's why he wrote the poem. Oh, really? Yes. It's I was like, if I'm going to curtain. do this slightly, slightly metagamey thing, taking this law, uh, the secret law that gives you, gives you shadow points, but then I'm going to take a fellowship 
undertaking. I was like, fellowship activity? That doesn't sound very Tolkien. <laughs> sounds like a summer camp. Activity is not a Tolkien word. Which which poem was that? The Black Hour. Ah, I've got that here. Yes. It's very good. Maybe we can have a we can release that somewhere. Yes. It's uh, very good. All, all four pages of it. I know. I, I like think one page for every point you lost. Yeah, I feel like I earned that uh, drop in shadow points. Is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, if you hadn't written a four-page poem, I wouldn't have given you the drop in shadow points. So. Exactly. <laughs> it all it all made sense. So in in the class, you, there's a lot of things that are building up here to to paint a picture of of Torvald as this expert in in knowledge, and then someone who who delves into shadow lore. And I think just for like a lore master insight there, um, th th there's a couple of other things. So the seeker of the loss has an ability when you hear of a ruin for the first time, you usually know a bit of information about it. And scholars in general have news from afar, which allows them to, to have uh, tidings. So they get sort of rumors and so on. And so I often found myself preparing long lists of rumors and I had like reference sheets of, various things that were going on that I drew from the books, which I could drop in. Maybe I'll ask a question about that now and then I'll say the next thing that I want to say. How did you find that? Because I, I don't know when I have a list of rumors and I drop them in, in conversations, did that feel natural? Cause I didn't want to be like, I use my news from afar ability. Ah, the news from afar has arrived. There is something going on in the mountains of Markwood. Can I answer your question with another question? Okay. Was there ever a rumor that we just seized way too eagerly that there was nothing to it? <laughs> yeah. And you were just like, why did they keep coming back to this? Yes. Which one was it? There was a rumor about like <laughs> I, mean, I think fault. I know which one it was, but yeah. was... do you want to say? <laughs> Is it the one about woodman children being stolen or woodman <laughs> being kidnapped? Yeah. Yeah. Or, but particularly from the the eaves of Merkwood. Yes. I won't explain what that was, but... I know what it was. Okay, yes. So I don't know if I knew what it was. Maybe I think I know say. what it was. We can just I say, say it. So, but in the lore at that time, uh, Smeagol Gollum is around, and he's known to travel through Mirkwood. So um... there's a thing in the... Uh, one of the books is called the Mirkwood Campaign. It's got a timeline. And in that time, it mentions this as happening. And I was like, oh, that's a great rumour. And then you're like, well, we have to go sort this out. We'll have to go and do it. And I'm like, no, we can't go. See, what we do, what we do is... Destroy the cannon go, of us hunting Gollum. We go hunt and kill Gollum and then do Middle Earth. <laughs> and Frodo becomes <laughs> Dark Lord. My, the second thing I wanted to say about these uh, information, I guess, giving things, and actually scholar in general, which I think is a challenge for scholar and more so than the others is that it's sometimes hard to think how did they come by when you got the shadow lore thing how did they come by that knowledge or like lore like lore proficiency like if you're not from Minas Tirith whereas Minas Tirith I feel like you know you could be in the library of Minas Tirith and there's, there's records there if you come from Dale how do you draw that in I think we've come James and I have come to an understanding and a solution later on in the game which actually is is sort of retrospectively i'm not going to say what that is i don't think josh knows but um we have come up with a way of tying that into the lore I, I, do you have anything to add to that james i would like to read a small passage from 
the book. The good book? In the beginning, no. Um, the most important thing to keep in mind when creating your scholar is to think of where and how you gained your knowledge. Oh. Did you study under a master learning as an apprentice? Is your scholar a dabbler flitting from one obsession to another? Or do you learn all there is to know about one field of law before moving on? It's really the first half that I wanted to highlight, which is to say, this is just to note that that's something the book raises. Hmm. And I made potentially the challenging choice not really very consciously that told would be something of an autodidact that he would be voraciously reading and then we had to just figure out where these books were coming from and therefore invented the royal library of dale to try and explain where he would where there would be books for him to read and then he would be involved with the building and then he would also have helped organize it at some point that that was his equivalent of undergraduate study, essentially, that he was just in the library, ostensibly helping out, but really doing a lot of reading of the books. Yeah, I love that part of your backstory. And we, we were just talking about this before we started recording that we, when they went to Dale as a party much later on, it was really great for me because James had came up with a list of NPCs that he knew in Lake Town and Dale and weaving them into the plot and, you know, it's sometimes difficult to to get a, a vision, you know, if someone gives you an NPC to pop in and, you know, James has uh, done this really well in games that I've, uh, that you, you've run and I've, I've, I've played in not, not so much like direct, but like, you know, just in the, yeah, he's nodding his head. So um, the Royal library was great because, you know, in, in the book, there's not really a thing. And so we come up with this, you know, their mentor who's a stonemason called Hepti, who was this this dwarf, and that kind of explained your your link to the dwarves, and then the librarian uh, Lomond, who is a really great NPC. And I guess, like you know, episodes wise, we could one day come back and and do some deep dives into different places and some NPCs that we've come up with, and they're two two of the highlight ones, I think. Yes, I very much like having some focus to imagining characters which i tend to the way i tend to do that is i like to actually do some i like to cast them i like to pick an actor and be like this this actor matches not necessarily exactly what i think the character looks like but has the right energy or well vibe <laughs> vibe check that's vibe check <laughs> and so which i sh should have mentioned earlier because I actually very early on, I cast uh, Timothy Chalamet in my head as to be Torwald, which sort of helped me define what made Torwald actually different from me. There's a different vibe. And similarly with the, the, the NPCs that I thought made sense for Torwald to have had around him growing up and and through his self-education so i think it so so lomond who i think is your favorite one to play callum is i cast as ben mendelson and you just saw you just saw that i that i just made that suggestion you were like i know who this character is i know exactly his attitude and his complex mixture of appreciation for towards help while also being really really irritated having this <laughs> an annoying precocious young man 
kind of taking up space and reordering the books in the way that he thinks is best <laughs> or whatever else there was a very significant narrative segment in that that library late late in the game where they were undercovering some lore and uh, a lot of stuff about uh, Talisker, um which is a, a language that Tolkien wrote about which was a sort of uh, ancient language of Ravanian and, and men and that that was very important and I, I really enjoyed sort of bringing that character in and getting like kind of behind the scenes about uh, how, how their interaction was and I, I guess that reflects our game which is in, often there is more role play because um, I, I think you know the game is designed it's you do an adventure phase and then you just go off and say I do the fellowship phase and blah 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 and maybe there's some role play around that, but we we tend to expand that out a bit more and um, are so invested in the characters and story that it ends up being quite a lot of role play in the fellowship phase sometimes, which is great because that's some of the most fun times that we've had. I've absolutely loved hearing about this because I did not know that the Royal Library of Dale isn't canon. I didn't know that this was something that you'd made up and that, to me, it was a seat like the, the the bits that you introduced, James, and the bits that are in the canon and that Callum manages as lawmaster have kind of connected seamlessly. I didn't know that some of it was your backstory. And when we went, it just all felt like part of the story. I really like that it's a collaborative story that we tell mm. and that in different parts, we've all done that, I think, to an extent. But to the other players, I, I didn't know that that was the case. I didn't know which of them were characters you had yourself created as part of Torvald and which ones were just part of the texture of the role play that we were doing. Yes, I, the Witch King of Angmar is actually part of Brendan's backstory and actually <laughs> Tolkien created the Witch King of Angmar for, for Brendan's character. Oh my God, how did you know? Um, I have loved the journey because actually we did that quite early on and James came to me with that. And then I think there's been some characters along the way where I haven't really dialogued with the players enough, but the, the two most recent characters to join the party, I think it's, I've sort of taken on that model of having dialogue with the player, weaving them into the story, building NPCs, building connections and building them into the story. Cause I guess as a, as a, you know, in D and D, Sometimes I found it difficult to to connect people to the world when you haven't connected the world to them. So it's almost, you know, when you're world building, make that link right when they make the character and be involved and get inside the player's head and know everything. But then don't reveal that to their players, which is great that you didn't realize that that was uh, not part of the, the canon, Josh. So that's good. And I was excited when we visited the Royal Library of Dale because in-game, Torvald had spoken about it as an important part of you know, your upbringing and where you were from. And it was exciting as a player to then go and be like, oh, this is you know where Torvald's from. This is his neighbourhood and stuff. It's cool that that was something that you wrote from scratch with Callum. Again, really it, like it came out of necessity <laughs> because it needed to be an explanation for where would told have done all this reading there would be probably private collections in lake town this is something that cam and i talked about actually i think at one point this idea that that in, in lake town everything would be more in the possession of the, the merchant princes yeah while in in dale there is maybe some of the things to, to maybe go back to that earlier point what is different about uh 
do we actually talk about this in 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 the recording or was it before just before the recording it was just before the recording well it was still earlier and it still happened even if it was off the air so Cam and I were talking about what is different about Bardings versus Men of Lake Town and I think two things came up one is that it's actually not that different from different Jim Bjornings and Woodman which is not something yeah. that had occurred to me before but again it's the general population and then the group who follow a leader who says we can do things differently whether it's yeah. I don't, know how you, don't know how you describe what Beyond actually what Beyond's project is if he has a project but it's fascinating for a number of reasons maybe that's something you can talk about with Scott when Scott comes on but King Bardolf obviously offers this vision of a restored community that creates a, a deeper connection to the other cultures in the area at the same time so merchant princes in lake town have possession of you know the valuable objects including knowledge whereas in dale there is more of a i think a collective sense of purpose mm. potentially and that those who choose to go to Dale, there is something both idealistic and romantic with a capital R about the project of rebuilding Dale. It's almost like in the expanse, the Martians. Almost like in the expanse, the Martians. Yes, I, I I'm popping to my head right now. I yeah. am into that comparison. Lake Town is the United Earth and Dale is the Martians. Right. We have to do expanse comparisons. So we, we talked through when we talked about Thedric a little bit about the, the scholar uh, path, but I don't know how much in detail we, we talked about things. I was reading through the rules again. Um, there's some things I'm like, often when I read through the rules, I'm like, oh, did we forget about that ability? Like this, the, the fifth level ability for scholars, webs of deceit. Yeah, I don't forget about it. It is a, probably one of those cases because I think it's once per long rest. Uh, um, it might be one of those cases where I just, I'm always, is this the time to use it? Uh, no, it's not one per long rest, but it's at the start of any interaction. So you have to. Right. You have to make, you can make an insight check against a DC of 15 plus a target's wisdom modifier. So it's also hard. very hard. If successful at any point in the conversation, you gain advantage on one skill check. For your scholarship and preparation. That good. <laughs> For it's fifth not, level ability, it's not it's not amazing. It's hardly a cornerstone ability of the class. Yeah. The scholarship the, the scholarly inspiration die you get level six, I use more often. Yeah, you use that get, very well. That has come up a few times, just as whenever it's whenever we stack a roll in our favor as much as possible. Yeah. Yeah, you end up with like a warden inspiration dice, a scholarly inspiration dice, and a fellowship dice, and a song dice sometimes. There's lots of different dice you can yes, get from fellowship phases and from singing yes. songs. Singing songs is very fun. Though. So should we talk, because we could go through all the extra scholarly abilities, but they're all, most of them unlock after sixth level. You Sixth level, you can um, you can get more conditions recovered with your hands and cure. Level 11, you're, um, you become aware of secret paths 
And so you can give advantage to people on journey rolls. 13th, you can um, make preparation in advance. And you like can this one. Yeah, th- this one's cool. So it's a bit like Blades in the Dark, I guess, in that you have the, the pre-prepared, I think they're, they're called dice, uh, coins even, where you basically say like, earlier I did blah, 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 and prepared in advance. Have you, either or both of you, seen the Doctor Who Red Nose Day parody, The Curse of Fatal Death? I have not. I've not seen that. It's on YouTube. You should watch it. There is. It was written by Stephen Moffat way before he, before Doctor Who even came back from the cancellation. But one of the things there's there's a this game of one-upmanship between the Doctor and the Master, where they're always saying, "Well, I went back earlier in time and already <laughs> preempted the thing that you did when you went back earlier in time." And this makes me think of that a little bit. It's like, <laughs> well, <laughs> the thing you didn't know is. Talk to me about this. I'm, I'm fascinated because this, as a mechanic in Blades in the Dark, is fascinating and actually hinges on the whole structure of it as a, a game that encourages and allows for heists. There's also a comparable mechanic in Alien, which I love, and I'd like to know how this works because I didn't... I, I rarely read ahead class-wise. I approach characters in a very specific way. I don't think what am I going to be in 10 levels time? I just, when we level up, I investigate what comes next. Because I retired as Thedric, I never read this far in the scholar class. So this is genuinely news to me. Mm. It's level 13 and it's called Hope Unlooked For. Would you like to read it out, Callum? Or shall I read it out? You read it out. If you're sure. At 13th level, you make... Ma- already messed it up. At 13th level, you may make preparations in advance and only reveal them when the time is right. Once per adventuring phase, you may activate this ability and describe actions you took in the past that were unknown to the rest of the player heroes, but that they have now, but that have now come to light. You must then make a suitable skill check to t- determine how successful these preparations were. The lawmaster is entitled to veto any unreasonable <laughs> suggestions. The eagles are I coming. Love... I sent them word. <laughs> love it. Because this is a mechanic which exists in other games, which is largely absent from 5e and the various spin-off games thereof, including AIM. In Alien, which I will make my episodically, episodely, regular shout out to Free League's Alien RPG, which is amazing. One of the talents that you can have, which are special features each character gets, is called Hidden Stash. And rather than having any abilities or meaningful mechanics all it says is that you have a hidden stash from the beginning of the game which you don't need to decide what it is and a narrative moment you can just choose what is hidden in your stash and people reveal it at a key moment and it might be a special weapon or something secretive or a tool that you need to save in that moment and what i like is it's a secret the player has and then it makes you feel very powerful in the moment because narratively it makes sense that your character can answer the problem. And I think it's really cool that it exists in other RPGs and I did not know it existed in this. So this is very exciting to me. I guess it answers that thing of, it feels like sometimes there's situational abilities or rules that never really come up. And this is something that it can just cover that. You know, if you've got a thing where like you've got a hidden screwdriver in in Alien, you know, that may never be relevant. 
but by giving the player the ability to be creative with it. And I also like that it says you can veto it. It's, it's, it's quite <laughs> vague, um, I would say, this rule. Um, they give some examples, like, I found this ancient map on another adventure and I reveal it now. Or, I sent word to our allies in Rohan a week ago and they're going to arrive to bolster our defences just before the orcs attack. You know, there's a there's a challenge there when someone uses this ability for both the player and the lore master to make that fit and work. And I probably would, I think if someone, when you get to that point, uh, James, or if we get to that point, hopefully, we, I think if you were going to use that at some point, maybe we would get you to, we could talk talk about it briefly before and then bring it in or, or something like that. I would just like to read out the other examples because I think they get better as they go along. I guess the king would imprison us, which is why I braved the jailer a week ago to hide a key behind this loose brick. That's inspired. <laughs> then the final one is, I just happened to bring along these fireworks. <laughs> they are hilarious. Well, I, I love this. I'm really glad we're talking about this. I think there's an interesting difference between the alien RPG and this, which is that with this, we have a very comprehensive, long-running campaign, which you've built up an established world and added even more texture to it. And it's it's very intricate, and we all understand how it works, which I think makes this ability a little challenging because it kind of pushes the realism of the world that we've done lots of other preparations, and the fact that we'd asked the king to send his soldiers was never discussed, <laughs> and yet that's the thing that saves yeah. us. Whereas in Alien, because almost all the games are just a one-shot or a two-shot, and actually there's not a massive amount of world-building, it's much more an in-the-moment game. It makes sense to me that James might be playing and be like, oh, thankfully I have just the key card that we need to get through that kind of emergency moment. So yeah, this is difficult to integrate. I'm fascinated by this. What I would say, one of the problems with role-playing games, which has any kind of ability which is linked to intelligence, is it requires the real-life player, which doesn't require with any of the other abilities, to be intelligent (laughs) in a way. (laughs) When you're doing planning, like, like for instance, my character might be incredibly strong. I don't need to be incredibly strong to then knock down the door because I just roll the dice. An intelligent character would have good ideas, and to an extent, the player has to role play Mm. the good ideas this is a good way of solving that actually which is hey my character's a genius I'm not a genius I didn't need to think of the idea my character would have though and here we go here's the answer and you don't want to remove player agency so say like there's a really high intelligence character and you're running the game and you know as lore master there's this thing that you should do I don't want to say to someone like oh here's the answer for your riddle you know uh, and that, we, we should talk about riddles at some point in the future because I found we did try putting riddles in at some point and I found them really hard to get it to be fun. Yeah. And that that I guess it's like you roll an ability check and if you roll a 25, and then, you know, I just say, oh, you suspect, but, you know, trying to drip that, that in. I don't know how successful that's been because, you know, you want your players to be able to think about things and come up with good ideas. Uh, and also the flip of that is that if you're playing a very low intelligence character or a very low wisdom character, but you as a player of like, I've got a great idea. Yeah. And then you, and then you don't want a player to be sitting there and being like, oh, I think I know what we should do, but I don't want to say it. The grog conundrum. Yeah. Yes. So this is quite powerful. I would say it is a 13th level ability. So 
and yes. it's once per adventuring phase. So it's not like you can continually get from out of one scrape after another being like, don't worry, guys, I've sorted it. Yeah. It's more like literally that one moment when you really most need it, something helps. I suppose it, it speaks to what the class is about, the idea that someone who is, is intelligent and is prepared and has researched, mm -hmm. which is kind of the idea of the scholar. All the things that you learn are the idea that you would put in the effort to learn them, like with hidden, hidden ways and hidden paths. It's not that you suddenly understand, oh, there might be hidden paths. It's that you're the sort of class who, as you were wandering through the world, would have actually you know, put that knowledge to mm -hmm. good use. Mm -hmm. We'll just run through quickly the last of the generic scholar abilities. So a level 15 Habits of the Wise, uh, you can basically reuse an ability. So if you've got another ability to recharge in a long rest, you can spend inspiration to get a second use of it. Quite so you could use Hope Unlocked for twice at 15th <laughs> level. <laughs> I, I have to completely admit that. Yeah. I sent level... word to the dwarves a week ago, and then later on you'll be like, and the elves. <laughs> <laughs> words and spoken at 17th level you can convey your thoughts without speaking aloud which is in in the lore from, from Tolkien you can uh, deal with other high level scholars elves Dunedain and you can hold you can have a conversation speaking mind to mind which is quite cool and then at level 20 you can choose one intelligence or wisdom skill and you automatically succeed at all ability checks using that skill also you can spend inspiration to learn something completely hidden about your chosen lore either by shrewd guess or seemingly chance insight, you learn a useful secret. I mean, it's very Gandalfy. Yes. Right? That's the other obvious thing to say about the scholar, is that there is a strong extent to which you are, while you will not have his level of power, you are playing the role in the party that Gandalf played in both Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. Yeah. And there's, I think there is something magical about this. And, that, you know, we talked about, you know, magic in, in Tolkien and that there is magic around. And I think, you know, linking that into the deep lore and, you know, Valar and other things, you know, there are ways in which people, it's probably slightly easier. Like, say you're playing a high elf. I think it's very easy to, to justify some of these things. You know, you, you're you Noldor, you've been around for thousands of years. Like, of course, you're going to have all these connections. For men, it's difficult, but then, you know, there are examples through the soul. Malbeth the Seer it was a man who had visions and portents and lived in the kingdom of Arnor and Arfidane before it fell. So, you know, there are examples of, of mortals that, that do get these higher powers and, and abilities. So, you know, I think it, it does fit. That I just think that's a great moment, a great link to talk about the only other... No, not the only other. One of the two other features that the Master Scholar gets in addition to the secret laws. So dark knowledge is a secret law. Ancient law, which is more about uh, history rather than the shadow specifically, is a secret law. Birds and beasts, uh, the natural world, runes, and the works of elder days, which I chose for the proficiencies anyway i haven't read these names they're really they're all yeah so like ideas for new characters at level 14 know. you get deep knowledge which just gives you the ability to ask the lawmaster three questions about a thing 
for which they must provide truthful answers. Not necessarily complete answers, but truthful answers. However, at 18th level, you get words of command, which is kind of a big deal. This is the closest that rules has written any classes. There are, elf, I think, cultural virtues that also are in this neighborhood. But I think the closest any classes get to being able to cast spells. So at 18th level, your mastery of law gives you authority over the world around you. Once per short rest, you may speak a word of command. When you do so, choose a target related to one of the secrets you have mastered, one of your secret laws, and make the appropriate skill check against the DC set by the lawmaster, typically at least a 20. If successful, you may give a short but irresistible command to your target. For example, ancient law, command a door made by the elves of Aregion to open. Birds and beasts, order a fearsome wolf to fly back to its den. Dark knowledge, command a wraith to return to its tomb. And so on and so forth. Wow. I don't feel some of those things you've mentioned are quite on a par. I feel I, scaring a wolf away, okay, fine. Opening a door, that's pretty powerful. Scaring a wraith away feels... Commanding a wraith. That feels a, a level above some of the other things that we've talked about there. I, I would point out that the reference point for word of command is from uh, Barland's tomb. This is not for against if anything it, it supports what you're saying is from but from Balan's tomb in fellowship of the ring gandalf says i had to speak a word of command to whatever presence was trying to force its way into the oh, tomb yeah. so this is explicitly a reference to that cool wow and actually it's you have to make an ability check against a dc usually about 20 but at level 20 you automatically succeed an ability check so then you could just get I the autom- thoughts about that. Does that mean that you can just get the word of command to automatically succeed? That's great. Well, that's, a, I think, I'm just conscious that we've been talking for a long time and there yeah. are things that we want to talk about still. Let's um, let's move on and talk about virtues, the bar. I was going to say the same virtues. thing. Um, because there's actually something relevant. There's two things that are relevant in virtues to what we've just been talking about. Okay, you go, James. So let me find the right page. So, as a barding, as a as a one of the human cultures, you get a free virtue as a barding, and the virtue I chose is woeful foresight. Uh, this raises your wisdom score by one point, which is one of the reasons I chose it. But also, you may invoke your pa- once per venturing phase. You may invoke your power of woeful foresight. When this happens, the lawmaster should give you a relevant piece of information regarding adverse events likely to occur during your current adventure. If no such information is available, or the lawmaster prefers not to divulge it, once before the current adventuring phase is over, you may choose to automatically succeed either an attack roll, a saving throw, or an ability check. I completely forgot this is a cultural virtue, and I thought it was a scholar thing cultural virtue yeah i um so i think that's interesting based on what we just talked about for two reasons one the retrieving a relevant piece of information from the future is almost like the mirror image of what we were talking about with regard to having made preparations in the past yeah and also is 
has the hilarious effect of forcing the lawmaster to potentially have to pin down something that is probably going to happen, which I know has annoyed Callum in the past. <laughs> <laughs> has, has it come across as annoyed? Uh, no, but you, you have expressed uh, that there is a challenge to that. There is a challenge. It's, it's difficult because I'm trying to think of some of the visions you've had. So, for example, that troll that you fought, I think you, you got some foresight of that. I hope to have made it sufficiently vague. There was a thing where you went into the the wastelands, the northeast of Dale. Yes. And um, I had a vision. And because we did things differently than you expected, whatever happened didn't happen. Whatever I saw didn't happen. Yeah. I'm not sure if that was because of the vision. It's one of these, you know, I guess back to the future, you know, how does time travel work? You know, vision, <laughs> you see the vision, is it going to happen? Or... Indeed. It's really interesting because... I love DMing using like visions and dreams for things, not in a mechanical way, because I think if you give someone a vision or a dream, it doesn't need to happen or not because the players will react to it and it helps them tell the story. So if you, if you, they dream of something really ominous is going to happen the next night that then informs the player choice and they might change what they're going to do and they react to it. And it, it doesn't really matter whether that thing happens or not. The dream affects the story. But it feels like this with a class feature, or rather a, a, a virtue, there is a, it's a mechanical benefit that you need to get. And like, like you say, if you then don't go to that place because you've had woeful foresight about it and that event doesn't happen, <laughs> it's, it's strange to get the mechanical benefit out of something. I'm not sure if I'm articulating this very well. Hmm. Yeah, I guess... If I tell you about something bad and then you avoid the bad thing happening, that is a benefit. You've still got a benefit. From still it. got a benefit. Yeah, we never, we've never played it as if the vision doesn't happen, then you get the automatic success. We've only ever played it as if you don't want to say anything, then only then yeah. do you get the automatic success, which has only happened a couple of times, including the time I used it in order to persuade the woodmen to give offerings to the eagles to create, try and create uh, harmony. Uh, in the valley, which whenever I've mentioned, whenever it, it's come up since, you've always talked around that. <laughs> because there's a whole thing in the lore about the woodmen don't like the eagles because the eagles come and steal their, you know, livestock or animals, and so they have specific bows. And in, in this, and I say the lore in the books, um, I don't know how much is that true to Tolkien's. There's a mention of it in in the Hobbit. Yeah, so I remember picking up on it last time. I read you know, it's book. quite a significant thing. Um, anyway, I'll leave I'll leave that un, unsaid. I think it's fair to say that a single role is not going to change an entire society. What it might do is open the possibility that some might consider there's another way of doing things. Maybe. And you've also like, picked up a couple of other like, barding cultural virtues. I have not always through leveling up, uh, and this gets to one of those what would you have done differently things the one the other one that i've picked up is king's men which gives you proficiency in broadswords longswords spears and great bows or two of those you get plus one to a bonus to attacks with those weapons so callum was nice enough to let me train to get that or that tall train to get that virtue over the course of two first phases, yeah, it was it was a lot of work. Like you 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 committed to it, and you, you had to train with the king's men and Dale. Yes, and... and but if I had 
design the character with what I know now from the start, I prob that probably would have been my starting virtue. So that combined with a more, shall we say, traditionally strong set of abilities, ability scores, Torwald will at least have been not great at combat, but competent at combat from the start. So he would never get multiple attacks, but the one attack that he did do would, would likely be effective. And I probably would have had dexterity rather than wisdom as my second highest modifier. I think it would have changed the character quite dramatically yeah. because I think he would have come in as a slightly more, it probably would have been made sense for him to be slightly older. And I think he would have had a bit more self-assurance and almost more of a hard edge, to be honest. I think he would have been someone who comes in, a character who comes in or being able to use a stick and a knife versus a character who is very skilled with a sword and a bow. Those are different characters. Mm-hmm. And I think it would have, I think there was something a little bit Frodo-ish about Torvald in some ways. Yeah, I think that's a really good comparison. And I think if I had taken King's Men, he would have been more Faramir-ish, if that makes yeah. sense. That's an interesting comparison. And I maybe would have loved playing that character, but it would have been a different character. What are the ability scores that you had in the beginning? Pull away the curtain. I didn't think to keep my original level one character sheet. I do it. I mean, now why? For... Why would you? To be honest, well, I do it. Now, I do it now for all. Do you now? Do you, what, do you photograph them or download them? Or... I just have it on a PDF, but not not for necessarily for you know D and D five characters on into beyond because it's so easy on that to reconfigure things and yeah play around play around but when it's aim and you're using roll 20 and using pdfs and i like to have the original version in case i mess up and it's harder to fix but obviously his strength was eight <laughs> it's i can tell you what his his stats are now at uh, level eight just before we level up tonight his strength is eight his dexterity is 12 so that's a plus one modified text not fantastic 10 constitution it's amazing he's still alive really yep. uh intelligence thanks to uh the uh that ring that we found is now 20 <laughs> he is a genius wisdom is 16 plus three and charisma is 14 plus two so he's really good at, with the mental stats and terrible with the physical stats it creates a very different character it does you could have had a more traditionally balanced character and i think you're right role play wise he would have come out quite differently and his impact on the party would have been very different indeed I actually have the the original character sheet for for Torvald, and uh, I also just found all the paper the printouts from all the character sheets initially. Do you know how we were talking about Theodric? The Theodric at level one had an armor class of eight and ten hit points. We made some choices, Josh. He was an old man. Yeah, he he was an, just an old man who walked around the world, and it is a miracle that he survived. He survived partly with Torvald's help. And I think Torwell survived by yes, Patrick's Especially help. earlier on, before we got yeah. more marshals in the party. Yeah, Torwell's starting uh, ability scores at uh, level one were strength of eight, dex of 12, con of nine, Whoa. intelligence of 16, wisdom of 16, charisma of 13. I mean, I love it. I'm not yeah, it's so... like a mid-max or a power game or anything. I love it, and it's informed a really interesting Seven character. hit points. 
you you could have been a more balanced character <laughs> and you wouldn't be as smart now as you could have been but yes, you would have been yeah. better in combat but you would never have been like the boy genius who helped the party it's true solve puzzles yes there's a difference and I, I i like how it has helped shape the party and it feels like again if he had that harder edge not that you know family was hard edge or anything but it just would he would have held himself further apart from maybe the rest of the party there wouldn't have been as much camaraderie maybe early on of yeah. the party going i guess we need to take care of this guy yeah <laughs> is that less hit points than the commoner yes <laughs> commoner npc step so um i'm conscious that we've talked for a very long time about uh, Torvald. Lots of things. And we have um, some more more questions for you. Maybe Josh could pose some questions. I think we've touched on the first question I had for you, so we can maybe wrap it up with any final thoughts, which is looking back now, you know, two years on, dozens of sessions later, years in-game, is there anything you would do differently from the beginning? Is there anything that current James would say to past James and would say to new players about creating a scholar? I'm a higher AC and higher con, for God's sake. <laughs> I know we just said it would have been different and maybe not as distinctive, but I, yeah, I know what I like playing as now. It's more from that perspective. I like to just have a little bit more functionality in combat. It's not a huge part of the game, but I do feel for you because at this point, level eight, everyone else is like slaying orcs and felling goblins and multiple attacks and these abilities. And then Torvald hits once with his broadsword and misses. He usually hits with the broadsword. Well, that's true. He hits with the broadsword. It's an extra plus one. Because between his between his cultural virtue and the fact that the broadsword is a dwarven broadsword, he gets plus an extra plus two on that attack, which almost brings him up to a level of, you know, competence. Yeah. yeah, I've been quite generous in terms of giving you things to help in combat, yeah, because even if have. we make you, I mean, you're still not going to do a huge amount of damage with it, so. That's true. It gets plus three to damage on top of the die, so yeah, it's not it's not a lot. Oh, sorry, no, 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 a plus two, because, because the King's Man doesn't actually give you damage, it only gives you a plus one to hit, so he only gets a plus two on the damage die, so that's not... Not, he, he pitches in. in he pitches he, in. He, he does his, does his it start. does make it feel like when you when you get the, the kill or you, you do something, it, it really it feels impactful. Yes, I mostly just try and give other people advantage because <laughs> we, um, we use the flanking rules. Maybe a final question: What are some favorite Torvald moments in the story? Okay. Yes, I was thinking about this. And number one has to be the moment I like to call Brave Sir Torwald. Oh, yes. <laughs> Which is when, when we, the ambushers, became the ambushees after we tracked I this. So badly. After we tracked this bandit group to a crossroads and decided well yes we know there's 20 of them but they can't be all right here right now can they and yes they, they were they were all there right then so we we attacked we did we did pretty well under the circumstances but there was a point where it was clear 
that things were going quite badly. And it just became obvious that the best thing for Tall to do was not be there anymore. Not in a cowardly way, I would like to think, but just in a calculation of if I, I'm not good at fighting, if I stay, I can't help anyone. But if I leave, then I can come back later, maybe free them if they're prisoners, go get help. Not abandon the party, but you know, not go down with the ship either. And so so told bought it, because he just made the calculation that that was the best help he could give the party, was to help them later, rather than die now. And he drew away at least one, if not two, of the bandits, which gave space for Scott's character, I think, primarily, but also, also Runin to, I think most of the rest of the party were down by that point, but it, it, yeah. let, it let Kahu and Runin uh, have some breathing room, and they were able to uh, I think one of the things it did was it prevented someone from, ha- from being, it prevented someone from being flanked I think is one of the things that happened. You know, it was, it was one of these moments where it was so close to combat, to a TPK the closest that had been the whole time I think I think Josh, your character went down in like the second round of combat yeah. or something. And, and my character at the time, Helmir, who's my second character, was, your, was, was our a, tank. Or one of our a, tanks. A marshal, a soldier of Gondor. He went down first. The, the scales tipped so quickly. And we had another warrior as well, didn't we? And they we had another down. warrior. We had another uh, warrior. warrior. He, he went down there. second, I think. Yep. Yeah, it was real bad. Actually, this is a great. This is a memorable moment for me. It's a great example because if you had rewound to the beginning and you'd actually balanced Torwald up a bit more from the start, and he had a slightly better con, and he was a bit better in combat, this. he probably wouldn't have run away, and we almost certainly would all have died because he would have been a more rounded character. He wouldn't have had that like, no, running is the clearly the best option, which it was, and. I don't think any of us thought in character he's being cowardly. It was, well, we're all going to die and he can get away. That seems totally normal. You saved the party. And I think it would have been different. You did totally save the party by playing your character. But by running away. But by by playing your character. Yes. (laughs) Yes. I had uh, a couple of favorite moments from, as in, from a player watching. Okay, I have two more, but can you give me no, one of yours? Alternate. Let's alternate. Alternate. They may be the same. Let's alternate in case one of yours is one of mine. Well, one of mine is more to do with the relationship between Torold and Halmir, who's my current, my second character who took over from, from Phaedric. We'll, we'll talk about him in more depth in a future episode. He's a soldier of Gondor, though. And part, part of his kind of backstory was that he was supposed to be a scholar in Gondor. And he turned away from that to be a soldier. And for me, that was because I played a scholar as my first class and I wanted to pivot away. It was just a kind of quirk for me. But because of that, he and Torald always had quite an interesting dynamic. I think Halmir saw Torald as kind of what he might have been if he had followed a different path. And he kind of liked it, but found it frustrating. I think he saw some of the qualities he didn't like in himself in Torwald and he found that frustrating but he also felt a kind of like arm around the shoulder and I liked that we quickly built up an idea that well there's a great library in Minas Tirith which you knew about and I knew about and that we've always had this sort of sunset story that we've mentioned in role play around campfires and stuff that oh one day our characters together 
could go to the library at Minas Tirith. And it's not happened yet, but I really like that that's kind of their connection. And I think of their dynamic like that as, as kind of two sides of a coin and that they maybe have somewhere they could end up together. Have you ever seen it? <laughs> the White City? <laughs> <laughs> Save it. We'll use this. We'll use this when we go. <laughs> okay. That was, that was a really lovely description of you know the 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 power of rp and the you know the the connections that are forged between characters um can i tell you about my next choice Please. <laughs> okay i'm sure it's lovely as well the bat fight, <laughs> <laughs> the, bat fight. the bat fight remember the bat fight guys yes very much so specifically the moments where told was physically lifted up <laughs> by a bat uh, I can't remember how far was there 20 feet quite far it was a, a, a war bat of Gundabad so a war bat there. of Gundabad yeah and my immediate in character comment was I never read about anything like this <laughs> happening before <laughs> for which Callum gave a rare inspiration <laughs> It was such a great moment. <laughs> it felt like, yep, obviously this is going to happen to Torvald. We're fighting this heroic battle against these great bats. Oh, he's been lifted up. He's going to fall to his death. So, so Callum gave me inspiration, which next turn, my next turn, I immediately used to attack the bat and got a natural 20. <laughs> Fantastic. And, and got it to drop me. I can't remember if it died or not, but I think Callum ruled that it got that I got this drop me. So just in combination of of the moments in which Todd has actually hit with his sword and done something effective, that that is my favorite one of those. Did the first time he used because that sword, the the that, story of how he got that sword was essentially. Um, I don't know around this, for another time. Maybe it's that's like quite a long time. story. Yeah, quite a long story. But the first time you ever use a sword in combat, I think you got a natural 20 and killed something. That's also true. I think yeah. you're right. That was a pretty cool moment. So I love that sword. But uh, do you have another... You said you had a couple, Josh. Do you have another favourite moment or not? Or was it more of a... One of them is one we've actually mentioned. It was back at the City of the Aether. It was when I was Theodric and you were Torwald. Ah. And we were debating... I'd written this down beforehand as one of my favourite memories because I thought it, it showed the difference between two scholars of, of Theodric being like, I know the world, I know it's dangerous, whereas your view was, there might be knowledge down there. And I thought to myself, There might be no, something interesting. I know it's dangerous, we're not going. And I really enjoyed uh, how that all played out. And it informed, again, that kind of informed our relationship with followed, which I think there was a kind of grudging respect between the two. And I think we kind of met in the middle slightly yes. after Runin nearly got Because we were both right. We were both right. And I think, yeah. you know, it, it maybe took a near-death experience for our yeah. friend to... to yeah, afterwards, that. everyone was like, we should have listened to Theodric. But, but also, also, you got so much information and stuff. Yeah. That has come in handy later. Like the map. To, it has to be fair. The map, yeah. And, and I really wanted you to go inside because I'd prepped all this cool stuff. And we found like, well, that... Of course calls... they'll want to go in because it's a game and you want to explore everything and that's my mentality. Whereas everyone was like, well, you don't want to die. You're like, oh yeah, that is that's also reasonable. <laughs> but, but we found that cool saddle. Oh, oh yeah, cool that's now hanging up in a bar. <laughs> Which is, is that hanging, is. A, is that in the bar in Stonyford? It's at the bar in Stonyford. 
There's going to be a Stony Ford episode, right? There's going to be an episode that's just about Stony oh, Ford. Yes. So much to say about Stony Ford. James, to see us out, why don't you give us a lasting Torvald memory? So I think you've said previously, Josh, that for a long time it felt like the main character of the party was Kahu, Scott's yes. character. And that sort of reached a peak when we met a significant character from his past. I don't know. I don't know why I'm talking about this. Is if we can't give spoilers for a campaign that hasn't been recorded and no one else can see. Kahu's oh, yeah. sister, sister. I'm talking about it as if it's an episode of Critical Role. That's what I'm doing. So we met. We finally tracked down Kahu's sister. He didn't know she was Kahu's sister. That was that was a whole thing. And we figured it out. She didn't really know who she actually was. And there was a long debate with her, trying to persuade her to potentially see that she had maybe been brainwashed by a cult leader. <laughs> yeah. And I just remember it as a great party moment. Everyone everyone in the party sort of contributing their perspective, trying to support Kahu. And there was just very naturally, it's going to sound really cheesy, taking it out of that context because it came about very naturally in the moment and then it's going to sound like a you know like a cw superhero show or something like that saying it out of context <laughs> but there was one point where someone it may not have been told challenged her on this kind of blood warrior rageful approach to the world death sort of death seeking kind of sort of classic barbarian archetype approach to things and Callum had her say something sort of off the cuff in the moment along the lines of the only thing that matters is is how you die to which I had told respond no the only thing matters is how you live which just felt like a very satisfying payoff not to just what Torwald had been trying to argue for in that encounter that social encounter that conversation but what the whole party had been trying to together articulate and what i like about it as a moment is it it felt like it it was this uh just moment of everything just falling into place it felt like it all the all the threads came together in that conversation at that one moment all the threads of that conversation came together in that one moment. I, I don't know. When you design a character and you, you know, but linking them into Kahu's path, and you almost, you might have killed her and never known or found out later on. I think for me as a lore master, that was probably the NPC player interaction, which when I've run the best, I don't know how you feel, but, you know, afterwards I felt like that went really well. Like it was impactful people really cared because there was a connection to one yeah. of the player characters and there was this tension and also i felt like i managed to get into that mindset of how would someone be and you guys did a brilliant job uh, you know and we're talking about torvald torvald that you know and james is very good at this uh in in just picking apart the bullshit of this character's worldview and convincing her and that was a moment where it was like all rp i don't think there was really any skill there was maybe some skill checks involved but that was sort of summed up her game i guess that that bit about you know 
family and the themes that were going on. A good moment to to maybe wrap up our, our Torwald discussion. I think so. Wonderful. I feel we've covered a lot. I have loved learning about Torwald's backstory. I loved the stuff about the library. I'm now going to have to look back at my notes and think about what my observations were. But Scholar, Torwald's Curiosity, and I suppose it leaves us with the question of the shadow, which we can talk about next time. The shadow encroaches. Thanks very much for joining us, James. No emails except on party business. And comments, suggestions and questions to thefellowshipphase at gmail.com. The long year turns to its close. Much we have accomplished these last seasons. Our fellowship disbands, but is not broken. And we will return. On the next episode of The Fellowship Phase.